Collins is our auto expert. So drop it in the gear. You've got a green flag. Here's you. You can read a lot of his stuff at ourautoexpert.com or the secondary site he uh, sometimes contributes to MSN. Sorry, Perry. Recently, I spent some time at Amelia Island, which is kind of a fun place to go. Amelia Island is very similar. It's a Concord
that hand is them a card. Yeah, you know, whatever's new, whatever is, um, from you know, the, the latest version of Ford Telecom. Completely redone. I would love to work you know, with you. Basically, we're looking on a special class where we're going to drive cars and guitars together. And I figure, you know, it would be a fun conversation, and we can kind of maybe lead anywhere. How these vehicles? But I got to tell you, Nick, the same time later, my own guest guest would win. Sean Oates, and he said, I would love to work with you. Was determined to be the best in its class last year. And you know something? He's a really great guy. Uh, one segment that's holding up, he, he got to sing uh, the national will be extremely up the event, which is very cool. I mean, if, if not by just someone, two vehicles, maybe he's more. Some attention, make it John Oates, right? the, uh, And then the he was passionate about his cars. So when we got to sit down uh, and talk about cars, he was, because he was, he was super excited about the Ranger, he had a, a Porsche, there there several others, but he had his I'm not sure they want to play against those two. Those two are pretty formidable in that category. That's going to be a really interesting category. Yeah, the Porsche Tractor, which he's actually had. He had me got up so we could wrong. race we as well. And then there was a lot well. of pink, pink baby tractors there too. I can't wait. Uh, so replicas of this Porsche tractor. That got a lot of attention. And so it's, you know, the Gladiator and Ranger are very designed hard to hard guy. He has a very racing background as well. Look at them. It's probably his second biggest passion. And so where the Gladiator is really built, I mean, it's a rank horse through the pickup truck bed for the most part. It's built for going off-road. Where the Ranger is built more for, you know, it still can do off-road. There's no question, but it's built for more everyday use. And what he did was he So it will be very interesting to see how these two stack up. I think the Gladiator is probably the best model. This is a competition. It's probably going to be the one to beat because that's, the vehicle that I think most people are most excited about. When I take it to TV stations around the country and I show them the Gladiator and have it in the TV station, I think the one thing that impressed me most that he said he had this car to celebrate 70 years of Porsche and his 70th birthday and I was like, what? You're going to find out on this show. I had to take two or three looks at him. It still has the attention. It still has the It's the captive audience for Maybe there was some Hollywood skullduggery involved in there and how he's weathered, but he doesn't look 70 whatsoever. That was awesome. Uh, listen, this event uh, goes on annually, so, so well tell us, uh, we obviously have you know, missed the, the 2019 like. What are some version, of the other vehicles that are If somebody's interested in, in going down to Florida, and by the way, um, March in Florida got, is really uh, nice. If you should uh, go down to Florida uh, for it you know, next year, how do we find out what's happening? How do we get in touch? Where does all the information come from for Amelia Island 2020? Yeah, that was seems to be the heart of the market. We would love to have everybody there. So we've got it's vehicles the like the Rav4 that we mentioned. In March. So this uh, Subaru Forester, which was also new for the 2020, it'll be, uh, and this is a big one. We'll be competing there. The annual event, which I believe was the and winner so last I, year. I talked to Bill Warren, and, the founder and, and chairman, North American, and it sounds like he's going to pull out the activity stops. vehicle so, of the year or utility listen, vehicle of the year as well. Was was fantastic. And the cars, the people, Jeep is also playing in that celebrity on the background with the Renegade. All of its top rate. Yes, but I really think the twenty fifth show, and I don't know how Bill's going to do this, but looks he a lot seems like to get up every year's crossovers. But I think he's going to argue that it's one of the best ones we've ever had. So right. The way and to then, learn of course, there is things like the BMW X5, the G Wagon, the GLE. It'll be interesting to see how they compete because they are also for me. What's highly interesting is the X5 versus the X7. What's the difference? That's really the best place to get your information. Of course, you can think on Facebook, the X5 versus the GLE, which probably you can also check it out. Instagram, yeah. it's Amelia Island Cohort of these luxury right. ride-ups. This so. is awesome. Perry Stearns, you're joining us on today's show. And I will promise you in the next 24 hours, I will post the rock stars John's going to be with us for the rest of the show. Perry, thanks for getting up part of your Sunday. And when we come back, more stuff, which includes John talking about military discounts on cars. We're going to have some more from Amelia wherever it was.
Keep listening. More of our auto and more of Nick Miles is coming up. Nick Miles is on the way. Start your engines and you're off. Back to our auto expert with Nick Miles. In the studio with us, John Vincent from US News World Report. Jen is here too. Uh, We've been chatting about Amelia Island, which went on earlier this month in Florida and a great Concord Ellingos. One of the things that was uh, a lot of fun for me was I got to drive um, some some various VW Beetles, but uh, I didn't realize how many vehicles were spawned off of the pan and the chassis of VW Beetles. There, there's a long list of them, including some things like the engines and transmissions were used in different little VW trucks. Uh, it was quite a lot of fun. And we wanted to have uh, Mark Gillies from VW join us to talk a little bit about some of the cars they had there at Amelia Island. Uh, Mark, thanks for taking some of your Sunday out to join us on the phone. I think the one car that probably got the most attention, uh, apart from things like The Thing, was the wedding car, which was basically a VW Beetle, but without the body on it, and it had wrought iron uh, around with the body on. And I loved your line that you said to me when we were down in Amelia Island, it's the only car that you could drive while having your foot actually physically on the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right, Mark? It is. It's almost Flintstone-ish. I mean, if you if you got into trouble, I suppose you and the passenger could try and slow the car down with uh, <laughs> by putting the brakes on that way. But, yeah, it was, um, it's it's a, it's an interesting car. I mean, it's a it's a pure Beetle floor pan and uh, with a wrought iron body that looks like a Beetle. I mean, even the doors are the right size and everything. Um, so it's, it, it's uh, something that was built in Mexico in uh, late sixties. Actually, I mean, it was done initially as um, a sort of publicity stunt for a VW uh, garage and then um, you know the people at VW saw it and they decided to adapt the bodywork uh, to some Beatles for the Mexico Olympics in 1968. Oh wow and uh, they do actually use them occasionally for weddings as well right? Um, I, I guess people do use them occasionally. There's, there's only very few of them in, in captivity, actually, outside of, you know, Volkswagen. Um, so there's, I know there's one in California that's in, in private hands. Um, yeah, we, we actually saw that um, we're sponsoring the, the U.S. soccer team, and, and we were going to put out a tweet uh, suggesting this would be the perfect car for Ali Krieger to get married in. But uh, <laughs> it's apparently shit <laughs> <laughs> uh, no nice little publicity stunt there, I guess, too. Uh, I was surprised that uh, there are some, I mean, every single story of these VW Beetles, which have been propelled out of the original uh, that have been built on this, is completely unique and completely different. Uh, the one vehicle I fell in love with, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, was the uh, the Beescow which is this sort of, uh, you know, Cooper, there's a there's a convertible version of it, but it was built around the end of the war. And the story is, I mean, you, you guys brought over the original descendant of the family that built this car, and it's a just, it, the stories are a million fold deep behind this car. I mean, even to the fact that they couldn't find door handles to, re, to for this car, so they had to go steal them from BMW. I mean, those are great little stories that go with these cars. Everything has sort of, real strong history yeah and actually there were a couple of cars there that were, were pretty cool in that they one of them was completely unrestored there was a Romex Lawrence coupe um, and basically it looked like it just comes straight out of uh, out of the barn and then there was a, a Dannenhauer and, and Stout car um, that had a Porsche engine in it which was was kind of interesting 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, just after the war, um, a bunch of coach builders looked to take Beetle chassis and make their own vehicles. And, I mean, the first two were Hebmuller and Carmen. And, you know, Carmen, they were, they were uh, asked to build some convertibles by the factory. Um, Carmen built a four-seater convertible. Hebmuller built this sort of sportier two-seater roadster. Um, and... You know, Carmen won basically because the Hebmuller factory burnt down after they'd built a number of the cars. Um, so, you know, but the Hebmuller is a really, really pretty car, and we, we have, we've got one in our VW collection. Um, and it looks like a Beetle, but it's kind of weird because it just is a little bit different. And you, you look at it, and it, it's, it, it's like there was a Romex taxi there as well, which is a four door Beetle. And you looked at it, and you're like, oh, it's a Beetle. And they go, hang on a sec, there's, there's four doors. How did that happen? <laughs> and, um, the, and the coach doors, aren't they, if I remember rightly? Yeah, well, well, it's a suicide door at the back. Yeah, yeah. So no, I think we call them coach doors to try and avoid the other word. <laughs> I like suicide. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, then the thing, of course, the, then this is a very uh, unique vehicle because uh, it was sort of military uh, intended at some point in the in the past, and it was sold uh, as sort of a, a commercial vehicle to the military even after it had stopped being sold to the public. But it seems to have a very special place in everybody heart yeah I mean it was originally called the type 181 and, and it as you said it was a military vehicle that went on sale in Germany but then in the 70s they brought them over to the states and they were sold as the thing um, and it's very kind of utilitarian um, open vehicle actually we, we um, our, our thing we just had it um, a little bit of restoration done on it because the vinyl top had died and and the side screens were, were a bit bit tired but um actually it, it's kind of weird because it drives like a beetle in most regard but it just looks completely different so people people love it i mean but for some reason people really connect with this vehicle and um it, it's friendly and it's it's fun but they look at it and they go is that a vw and then you tell them it's a thing and then if they've got long memories they remember the car right i think the other thing about it is which was kind of funny is a lot of people complain about having wind down windows in their cars instead of electric windows well the thing doesn't even have that the window's slide uh you know they're sliding windows because uh, wind down windows is i mean it's a very basic vehicle but again just exciting the way it looks but this this whole collection was sort of put together as you know look back at what beetle has done uh, over the years but because we're looking forward as well because in geneva you unveiled a vehicle which is synonymous with beetle the dune buggy and this is an electric convertible dune buggy but it's not so much about this concept car that may or may not be made in the future but it's really about the base of this car which could be a lot of other things you know once it gets finished in development yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we did by showing the ID buggy in Geneva was to show that the MEB platform, which is modular electric architecture, can actually potentially be used just like the Beetle platform was back in the late 40s and early 50s as the basis of a small run uh, or small batch of, of production vehicles, um, not necessarily built by Volkswagen, built by some outside company, um, again, in relatively small batches. So something like a June buggy um, is a perfect example of, of that. Um, you know, you could see somebody potentially doing, you know, a modern day Carmen gear maybe on the same same platform. But June buggy works really well because the, the electric architecture, whether it's, you know, whoever uses it, it's um, like a it's like a skateboard or we call it a chocolate bar. And so it's actually quite a tall platform. 
Um, so it lends itself to something like a dune buggy or a, or a, um, a bus because it's relatively tall and narrow. Uh, it'd be interesting to see somebody do a sports car based on it um, because, it, you know, the proportions might be interesting. Someone do a sports car on it? Like <laughs> you? <laughs> uh, I don't know if we will, but um, you could see, you know, if the, if the architectures, you know, if you can buy the platform, I can't see why people wouldn't think about doing that. Um, but obviously, I think, you know, it's very much in its infancy. So, um, you know, at Geneva, there was a company called E.Go uh, announced that they were going to build some cars on MEB, but I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly how far um, that particular relationship has gone. Do you do you have to? Uh, are you going to sort of supply this to anybody that asks for the base, the pan, the electric, the the chocolate bar parts, and then they can build what they want on the top? Or is it something that you have to be good friends with someone at VW to be able to get hold of? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I'm not really privy to that. I mean, the, my understanding is that. Um, if there are partners who want to come in and buy the basic architecture, they'll be able to. Um, but again, you know, that's the details of that. It, it haven't been finalized. It, it, there's kind of a, a rough understanding of what we want to do, but I don't think it's, it's sort of the I's have been uh, dotted or the T's have been crossed yet. All right, Mark, in the last 30 seconds, uh, in the VW Bug Beetle Ends Production 2019, uh, we still don't have an idea of what might happen in the future? No, I mean, we keep saying never say never, but I think, you know, the first thing you're going to see is the reincarnation of the uh, the bus with the, the ID Buzz, um, which should be out in three years or so. Um, holding, I, think, I think, you know, that's the next heritage vehicle. I think that one's pretty cool. Holding our breath, Mark Gillies from VW, thank you very much. You can also see the history of the bug if you go to ourautoexpert.com. We have a little video we made just for this show. Stay tuned. There's more to come with Nick Mile. Jump right in and put the pedal to the floor. Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles continues. So there was some big news uh, in the last few days that Tesla unveiled their Model Y. And we'll talk more about this with Anton Warman towards the end of the show, the last half hour of the show. But uh, a new Model Y, John Vincent from US News and World Report is in the studio as well as Jen. Uh, is this the saving grace that we hoped or that Elon hopes it will be for the company? We'll see. It's a very interesting car because it's the first time Tesla has entered a segment that already has competitors in it. Um, and, you know, Elon revealed this. There was a 4%, 4 point something percent, almost 5% drop in his shares as soon as he unveiled it. Clearly, the investors didn't like some things that were said at the unveiling. Uh, do you think it'll ever make it to production? I think it'll make it to production. Uh, um, it won't make it to production as the seven-passenger vehicle that they talk about, though, because it's essentially a five people you like and two that you really don't like. Right. They, I, I understood at the unveiling they wouldn't even open the trunk, uh, so you couldn't see you could see in the luggage space, and and they wouldn't let people in the third row. That doesn't say an awful lot for the positivity of this vehicle. It's uh, it's. Arguably an SUV. They're calling it an SUV crossover, but it's arguably one. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen the new advertising campaign from Jeep? I have not. Uh, the new campaign basically says that if you're calling your vehicle an SUV and it's not a Jeep, you know, you're not telling the truth because uh, you know, it's not this utility vehicle. You're just raising cars up off the ground. 
and you're basically trying to pretend that they can do all this great stuff when they really can't. We have that argument in our company all the time. And I don't think it's an SUV unless you can get four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. All right, that's a, that's a good. Uh, I agree that, with that, that would take probably about thirty percent of them off. But does the vehicle have to complete a course? I think it's a good idea to have a bar set. So we do. We have this for fuel economy. All right. So so we have a for fuel economy. The EPA sets a fuel economy bar. So you have a test, even if it's a mathematical test that the vehicle has to complete. So you do that. You we have it for um, you know something to be called a muscle car or a supercar. We have certain. Uh, criteria that it has to meet. Um, supercar tends to be price. Uh, why not, if you're going to call it an SUV as opposed to a crossover, which is just a basically a raised SUV, shouldn't it have to meet certain criteria to be able to call that? Because currently, vehicles fall into the class that they fall into by the strangest calculation ever, the EPA, which is interior volume. Actually, a number of factors go into that, but including whether the windows are tinted. Right. So interior volume is the start, right? So that's it's the size of, them, of yeah. the car mm -hmm. is, is calculated by interior volume. By the way, the Mini Clubman and uh, is it the Clubman or the Countryman? I think the Mini Countryman and the Mustang have the same interior volume. <laughs> so they fall technically in the same class. If you've ever seen the backseat of the Mustang, you'd know why. Right, mm -hmm. right. So mm -hmm. again, some of these things are starting to make not make sense because of, you know, I guess rules. Perhaps the rules need to be rewritten. Well, a lot of it's marketing. I mean, if you call a station wagon, nobody in America is going to buy it. If you call a crossover, right. put some cladding on it, yeah. everybody's going to buy it. Uh, but there's vehicles, for instance, like uh, Toyota with their new um, RAV4, where they actually made it off-road worthy. And when we had the launch of the vehicle, they had an off-road course, and it was through, you know, through the, some off-road that I wouldn't have taken a lot of. Uh, crossovers with and the thing performed Im immensely well and clearly they know it's going to be a big car because they plan to pour 749 million dollars into the u.s facilities to to build some of these new vehicles if your vehicle can't get over some sort of course i'm not sure it, you should be calling it a sport utility vehicle it should probably just be a, a crossover that is the argument um and does it make a crossover if you just raise it to you know above seven inches off the ground. I think it has to be have all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, all right. I mean, so the Tesla Model Y may fail. They've had this problem at Tesla with their vehicle suspension when people take it off-road. And they rewrote their, um, their warranty on the vehicle because it now says if you take some of their vehicles off-road, they're not going to warranty them. I wonder how the Model Y will do off-road. Was there? Any, there was no real indication. There was no talk about that. Yeah. So the the Model Y may not be an off-road vehicle. And, and well. when it comes to the market, it's going to be out there with I-Pace. It's going to be out there with Audi e-tron. It's going to be out there with Mercedes uh, MQE, the new E-Class electric. MQCB and A. Yeah. There's several of them. Here's the question, though. So the Model X, which has been their fairly successful SUV in some respects, uh, that's been out for a while. It has the the, uh, the gull wing doors that come up at the side. Yeah, they are gull wing. That's right. They're gull wing doors. Falcon wing doors. Are they falcon wing? I'm not sure the difference between a gull and a falcon's wing. I'm sure we <laughs> probably get some design. Anyway, so the falcon wing doors on the Model X. Uh, this does not have those doors. It has regular car doors. It's basically a Model 3 that's just a little higher, right? Yep, it's also a third the price. 
But the Model 3 doesn't have a third row. The Model 3 does not have a third row. No, the Model Y is a third the price of a Model X. A third the price. All right. So uh, I guess we relatively have to see how it pans out with sales. I'm sure Elon will get a bunch of money putting $1,000, a bunch of people putting $1,000 down, and then uh, the show will go on from there. Later in the show, we're going to talk to Anton Wallman, who's going to tell us about what's going to happen this week with uh, Elon Musk, because possibly there's some possible paperwork that's going to get filed from the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission that could change a few things. But it's interesting to see uh, minutes after you unveil a brand new car that your shares drop 5%, almost 5%. That That's an interesting. John Vincent in the studio with us. So is Jen. You're listening to our auto expert. When we return, Perry Stern's going to be joining us to talk about Geneva Auto Show and what he saw there. And we'll talk to John about an upcoming event right here in the Northwest. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. Our Auto Expert continues. Here's your host, Nick Miles. Every year, there are several events in the Northwest of the United States put on by the Northwest Automotive Press Association. Uh, John is the current president. He joins us in the studio here, but uh, also uh, joining us um, on the phone is Perry Stern. And Perry is involved with the uh, the Northwest Automotive Press Association as well. Um, Perry, you recently got back from, and we're going to talk about Mudfest, which is an upcoming event, but you recently got back from Geneva uh, Auto Show. We wanted to have you on close to the Geneva Auto Show to talk about it, but unfortunately, I think uh, you uh, you had to you were actually on your way to Geneva, so we couldn't get you on the phone at that same time. But you're back now, and you have all the information about these incredible cars that were launched at Geneva. Is there anything that we could possibly afford that was uh, you know available at Geneva, or was it all uh, way above our pay grade? Uh, for the most part, it's way above our pay grade, and the cars that are affordable, we may not actually ever get to see, but it is a fantastic show. It's one of my favorites, mainly because you get to see all the cars that, you know, for most people, you see it in the video game, and that's the only time you'll ever get to see it. For those that play video games, the uh, the Geneva show is every year? It is every year. In fact, it's the only major European show that happens every year. Yeah. Uh, Frankfurt and Paris happen in the fall, but they alternate years. So, uh, what happened to the London Auto Show? Did that is that gone away? I, it might still be around. It's never been a major show. I mean, it's uh, it doesn't really fit with the level of Geneva. And the amazing thing with Geneva is you get cars like uh, Pagani. You get cars, you know, Koenigsegg, you know, which is an extremely limited Swedish car company uh, as far as limited number of cars they build. It showed their brand new uh, Jesco. Uh, which is a ridiculous car. Um, it's it's going to go. Uh, basically, their goal is three hundred miles an hour. Wow! Uh, just wow! Uh, it's interesting about that vehicle is that uh, when I come on, a, you know, uh, when I'm doing different TV stations or driving different cars around the country, I come back to the airport. I jump on the bus from the airport, and uh, they take me to the parking lot uh, where I usually pick up uh, some sort of car, whether it's mine or, or something. Well, it's never unfortunately <laughs> the latest Koenigsegg. However, uh, I was on the bus and I'm on the phone just because I touch down and there's plenty of people that want to talk, and I've been in the air for several hours and i was 
mentioning something really quickly and as I got on the bus this guy asked me as soon as I had my phone up he says can you tell me what this car is I saw it uh, online and I said oh that's the new the badge looks like a Koenigsegg uh, he says yeah apparently it was shown at Geneva and I really want one I said uh, if you're riding the bus from the airport to the parking lot, you are probably not in the financial uh, well-being he's of being saving able to... his money. Yes, he's saving well, his money by riding the bus so he can afford a Koenigsegg Jesco. There you go. Um, yeah, it's the crazy a, thing though is the Koenigsegg was not the most extreme, by even close, uh, of vehicles out there because there's a car company called Remac, uh, which builds vehicles. Uh, I think they're based in Croatia of all places. Wow. Uh, and cheap, they have an electric car. Cheap place uh, to build cars, by the way, Croatia. I think the Land Rover Jaguar have a factory somewhere in that part of the world, too. Are, aren't they the That's company that builds cars for Richard Hammond to break? Uh, he did break <laughs> one of their cars, yes. Um, but the car that they had at, uh, at Tiva is the C2, which is their second new model. Uh, this car has 1,940 horsepower. Excuse me, 14 horsepower. I already like it. 1,914 horsepower. Yeah. yeah, that 30 would make a difference. Um, it'll go 0 to 60 in 1.85 seconds. Wow. Picture that. It's Less gorgeous. Than two seconds, an entire car going 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, and the crazy thing is it's all electric. I don't need anything like that, by the way, because... I'd, you know, I'd be the in jail for not being able to pay the fines, or I'd be in in hospital because I we did something stupid. Yeah, it just sounds like that car's ready to get you into trouble. Oh, most definitely, most <laughs> definitely. Um, but something that might be a little less troublemaking, I suppose you could say. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Volkswagen. Yes, yeah, so we talked. We had a little buggy. We had uh, Mark Mark Gillies on uh, just the last uh, segment talking about uh, oh, you know the new uh, not so much about that the history of the Mealy Island. They showed off of the the original VW Beetles and and you know it's an interesting story because the Beetle pan and and transmission and chassis were available for anyone to build a car off of. And it sounds like this new VW uh, Dune buggy is the same idea where they're they're putting this out there because you can build whatever you want on top of it. Exactly. It's their new electric car platform, uh, which the whole idea of it is that you could build anything on it, have a front wheel, rear wheel, drive, whichever. And what they did with the buggy is, of course, they made it like the Beetle. So it's rear engine, rear wheel drive. And the idea is that you could put a different body on it. And the great thing is they say they're going to build it. Oh, so they, they made the decision that Doom Buggy will be built? or is Because uh, the last I heard, it was just a concept. It was just a concept, and I don't know that an official decision has been made. The head of design, when doing a walkthrough of the car, said, oh, of course we're going to build it. Oh. Uh, when we mentioned it to... Is, is, uh, by the way, is he, someone, still, is he still the head of design? I believe he still is, but All we right. did mention it to the person in public relations who just rolled her eyes. She said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is different from the official line, but sounds a little bit like uh, political administration. Uh, so, uh, so we'll see what happens. All right, that's exciting. That's exciting. If there's one car that you could have took away from from Geneva in your pocket, I mean, you know, a very large pocket it may have been, but one you could have owned after the show, what would it have been? Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, there's so many beautiful cars, but you know, I think one of the ones that really stood out with me was the Bentley, the Continental GT Number Nine. It's the special edition huh. Continental GT. Um, it's kind of it's basically based. Well, it's not really based off of, but it's in memory of the original uh, Bentley that, you know, the four and a half liter Bentley that raced back in the 1930 Le Mans 24 yeah. hour race. Yeah. 
Uh, and so they've numbered it the same. They've colored it the same. Uh, it's absolutely gorgeous inside. A big nine at the front, the British Racing Green, or, or a metallic version of the British Racing Green, right? Exactly. Yeah. Of course. I've never been... Uh, I'm a bit more of a Rolls-Royce fan than I am a Bentley fan, but I think that uh, Bentley is more of your sports car version of a Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce is a little more sedate and elegant, which is, you know, compared... I, I think it was described to me once that uh, Rolls-Royce has an owner's club, Bentley has a driver's club. Oh, yeah. Well, I, mean, you, I, think you, so. I think that says it all. You, you, could, you could go there. And you're a member of there. both, correct? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Perry, are you a member of both, John says? Uh, driver and owner's club? Yes. Uh, yes, yes, because uh, I have both cars, so of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, do, do you think, yes, I, is, is there any cars for the common man like myself at uh, Geneva? There, there was, and it'd be really great if it came here. Uh, it's the Honda. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen it. It's this little Honda uh, e-prototype, but they've told us it's practically production ready. It's this little four-door electric car uh, with this beautiful interior with this nice wood and a big screen that goes across the entire dash. It's very basic, very simple. Uh, very likely it would be inexpensive. And at the moment, there are no plans to bring it to America. It wasn't very sexy, though, was it? It's cute. <laughs> That's what you say about somebody's baby when you didn't like it. Ah, oh, he's cute. Of it, course, all babies are cute, but they're not sexy. It sounds like a descendant of the element. It, it, oh. It's got certain elements of that, so to speak. Um, it's you know, it's kind of squared off. Uh, the particular one that they showed was a flat white paint, which they said won't make it to production. And the camera, actually, the camera mirrors are supposed to make it to production. Since it's not coming to America, you can still do those. Uh, but it's, when this car was shown in concept form in Japan a couple of years ago, it was probably one of the most popular cars at the show. And so I'm guessing that this will do pretty well. You know, it's going to sell in Europe. It's going to sell in Japan. Uh, it's got a 124-mile range. It can get back up to 80% in about a half an hour. Uh, and it's, you know, it's basic transportation, but... It looks cute. What can I say? The word on the street is that the headlights from that Honda e-prototype were actually motorcycle lights. Um, I could see that. It's possible. I mean, the one, you know, looking at it here, uh, it does have LED surrounds, as as cars do today. Uh, but, yeah, I could see. I mean, they do make motorcycles. That could make sense. Mazda chose uh, Geneva to unveil a car, too. They did, and I'm still getting my head around it. It's the CX-30. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that Perry speak for I didn't like it very much? No, not at all. Actually, I'm still trying to figure out exactly where it fits because they have a CX-3 and they have a CX-5. This is the CX-30, and apparently it is based on the new Mazda 3 platform, which is all new, as opposed to the CX-3 that is on the older platform. And they have the CX-3 there also, and they're very similar. The CX-30 is a little little bit larger, and what we're told by the Mazda folks is that it's going to be a little higher end inside also. It's a little more premium. I would have just um, presumed it would replace the 3, but that doesn't sound like they're going to go with that story. See, I think it probably will. My, my guess is this is the first of this new naming. This is, a, this is based on only my opinion. Um, but it doesn't make sense that they have a CX-3 and a CX-30, so I'm guessing that the CX-3 will get faded out, um, kind of like the CX-7 got faded out a while back that nobody remembers anymore. <laughs> isn't, um, it, isn't it interesting, though, uh, when we look at these vehicles, that 
uh, Mazda is still pushing the CX, or so sorry, still pushing the regular Mazda 3 very hard. And there are very few for survivors in that segment. And uh, nobody, and they, they have had problems with sales with the current uh, Mazda 3. But perhaps that's just the platform for the CX 30. And perhaps the Mazda 3 is, although may come to production, really they're looking for the volume numbers to be in the CX 30. And that seems to be the case with a lot of the manufacturers, you know, where, you know, the, it's the small crossover that's the top seller. You know, Nissan with the Rogue, I mean, the Rogue is the best-selling Nissan it has been for a couple of years now. Um, so it, it makes sense that, that they would base this on the new platform. Uh, it just seemed odd to have a CX-3 there and, and to basically say that they'll coexist, which seems odd to me. I also, we talked about this uh, with John a little bit off air before, uh, before the show, but, um, Jeep are taking a swing at all of these SUVs and basically saying that, uh, you know, you're not a real, uh, uh SUV or C, you know, unless you are a Jeep. Um, you, the best you could do is call yourself a crossover, which is just a raised car. And unfortunately, a lot of these vehicles fall into that, uh, that parameters. It's not about, uh, you know, what are the category, what are the criteria to be a real SUV? And, you know, John pointed out, you should definitely have all-wheel drive, which several vehicles don't in that segment. That's uh, true. You know, best best of all, I mean, the the CHR doesn't. Um, I think the Kicks does not either. Yeah. So there's several. Uh, there's several that could best be called a crossover, where uh, they're more of the over than the cross part. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it's although it's interesting, there are a couple that are trying to make themselves out to be uh, more off-road, like RAV4, for example. That's still definitely a crossover, but they've created an adventure version, which is but it's definitely for going off-roading. We talked about this just before you joined us on the air, that uh, you know they really designed that car to do off-roading. They took us off-roading in it uh, at the launch of the vehicle, and not severe off-roading, off but enough that a lot of other vehicles in that class couldn't have made uh, that. I I think, uh, you know, I look at Kia Telluride too, and a lot of the ads for Kia Telluride show it going through deep water and traversing. I mean, they're ads again. And Kia also it, came out with a, um upgraded version of the Soul that is supposed to look like an SUV, but again, isn't because it doesn't come with all-wheel drive. Yeah. Right. They apologize it, for that. It, it, the yeah, they did. I mean, they came right out and said that no, this does not have all-wheel drive, and it is what it is. Perry, uh, let's but take a let, Perry. Let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this because I want to tell you the best car of the show you've completely missed, which was the Aston Martin. But we'll get to that in a minute, <laughs> and we'll also get to the fact that Mudfest is coming up, which I know you're a big part of. It's where the uh, sport utility or the outdoor activity vehicle of the year gets chosen for the Northwest. Don't go away. There's more to come with Nick Miles. Our auto expert will be right back. He's Nick Miles, and this is our auto expert. On the phone with us, uh, Perry Stern. You can read a lot of his stuff at ourautoexpert.com or his secondary site. He uh, sometimes contributes to msn.autos.com. Sorry, Perry. I had to get a plug-in <laughs> from my own site there. A secondary uh, site, yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> may have about 50 million more views than me, but, you know, there you go. Uh, Perry, so what about the Aston Martin that was shown at uh, Geneva? Another pretty sexy, wasn't it? It was. I mean, that, that, actually, Aston Martin showed three mid-engine cars, which is uh, kind of an interesting direction for Aston Martin. But the new one was called the AMRB003. You know, it just rolls off the tongue. Yes. Um, 
but it's the uh, it's they was basically project three. This is the third in the line. They had the Valkyrie and the Valkyrie AMR Pro. Yeah. Uh, and both of those are just finally getting into production now. Uh, so they've shown this next one, which is uh, supposed to be a little more friendly for customer for consumers. Um, for passengers, you know, this is a complete hypercar. This one will be built by an or be uh, powered by an Aston Martin built engine, uh, which will be a hybrid V6. But they haven't said much more than that, except that it will likely be over a thousand horsepower. What I was impressed about, apart from a thousand horsepower, which will get my attention every day of the week, what I was impressed about was the fact that it morphs its shape um, during driving. It can change its shape thanks to things that come out and go in and that sort of thing. It does. It actually uses, um, I believe it's NASA technology, uh, that uh, it has basically has uh, a skin that can move. I think they call it flex foil. Uh, and it's been proven by NASA through you know performance and acoustic flight testing, and they're the first ones to use it on a car. Yeah. It's scary, though, isn't it? That when your car can change shape, it's, it's like I, I, you know, what comes to my head, Perry? It comes to my head is like a blob of jello with an engine in it <laughs> that changes shape as you. It wobbles as you move. I, uh, yeah, I went to Transformers, but yeah, yeah. Transformers. Okay. I was yeah. thinking Terminator. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> See, there's something wrong with me. I'm just saying. Uh, all right, let's let's move, uh, change gears here, and talk a little bit about the uh, the Sport Activity Vehicle of the Year Awards for the Northwest. Uh, John Vincent in the studio with us here. He's from U.S. News and World Report. John is also the president of the North. Northwest Automotive Press Association. Perry is the treasurer. I might have a small role, uh, more troublemaking role in the organization than uh, most. But uh, coming up in, uh, I guess, about a month's time, if I do my calculations right now, two month months' time. Month, month and, and a half. half. About a month and a half. Yeah, you, ha you have this event. So, uh, first of all, John, give us a synopsis of the event. Uh, we call it Mudfest uh, because most of the time in the spring here we're in mud. Yeah, um, it's where we get to go out and test uh, the the latest and greatest uh, sport utility vehicles and crossovers and in trucks, ways right? and trucks now yeah. um, in ways that most consumers will never ever drive their SUV or crossover. We actually get them dirty, we get them muddy. We also try drive them on uh, a road course and. Um, we have a blast. A go-kart track, right? We use a go-kart track with SUVs. Oh, the, last, and the last few years. It's a fantastic maneuverability course. Yeah, you you can find corners. Now, Perry, you've been involved in getting some of the vehicles uh, for the event. What What's your criteria? What are you looking for? Anybody that has cash and, and wants to uh, you know uh, buy a vehicle, wants to send us a vehicle, or what's the criteria of, uh, well, of the vehicles? You know, normally I'm pretty easily bought, but uh, <laughs> but, but the uh, the idea with with Mudfest is we want you know whatever is new, whatever is you know the latest version. If something's been completely redone, you know, basically we're looking vehicles that we've not had a chance to drive or most consumers haven't, a haven't had a chance to drive so that you know we can kind of report back on how these vehicles handle. At the same time, we do invite back past winners. So if, if a vehicle was you know, determined to be the best in its class last year, uh, we invite them back to give it a go again. One segment that's hotting up uh, and will be extremely highly contended if not by just two vehicles, maybe more at Mudfest is the uh, the mid-sized truck or the light truck uh, category because there is a Gladiator and a Ranger. There are several others, but uh, you know, I 
I'm not sure if they want to play against those two. Those two are pretty formidable in that category. That's going to be a really interesting category because we're going to have the Gladiator, the Power Wagon, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're going to have the Ranger there as well. Yeah. Correct, Perry? That is correct. I can't wait. Uh, and very likely a Nissan Titan. And so it's, you know, the Gladiator and Ranger, which are very interesting because on paper, they're very similar. And when you look at them, they couldn't be more different. Uh, and so where the Gladiator is really built, I mean, it's a Wrangler with a pickup truck bed for the most part. It's built for going off road where the Ranger is built more for, uh, you know, it still can do off roading. There's no question, but it's built for more everyday use. So it will be very interesting to see how these two stack up. I think the Gladiator is probably the vehicle to beat. Since this is a competition, it's probably going to be the one to beat because uh, that's the vehicle that I think most people are most excited about. When I take it to TV stations around the country and I show them the Gladiator and have it in the TV station, it's the one vehicle that gets the most attention. And whether it, you know... When we put it on the course, whether it does as well as the competition, you'll have to find out on this show. But the <laughs> truth of the matter is, it still has the attention. It still has the, it's the captive audience for that Gladiator. Well, I mean, if a vehicle could be an icon right from the get-go, the Gladiator is, because it just builds off of a Wrangler. Uh, and the Wrangler is so well-known, and you know, that's basically what the Gladiator looks like. What are some of the other vehicles that are significant in, the, in this event? Um, I think we've got uh, a couple offerings for, you know, I'd say the, the compact and subcompact kind of family crossover, kind of like the vehicles we were just talking about earlier, those seem to be the heart of the market. Those are going to be popular. So we've got vehicles like the RAV4 that we mentioned uh, with the Subaru Forester, which was also new for this year. Uh, we'll be competing there. The Hyundai Kona which I believe was the winner last year. Mm -hmm. we'll and, and one North American uh, uh, activity vehicle of the year or utility vehicle of the year as well. Exactly, exactly. So. Um, but Jeep is also playing in that in that uh, playground with the Renegade. Renegade, oh, Renegade. yeah. <laughs> yes, they're bringing Renegade this year, which is, you know, looks a lot like a lot of the other crossovers, but I think Jeep will argue that it's a proper SUV. Right. And then, of course, there is things like the BMW X5, X7, the G-Wagon, the GLE. It'll be interesting to see how they compete because they are also, it, it's, for me, what's highly interesting is the X5 versus the X7. What's the difference? How do they drive differently? Both yeah, at the same time, the, the X5 versus the GLE, which are probably the you know best-selling SUVs in both of these luxury lineups. So. All right. Perry Stern, you can read his stuff at uh, msnautos.com or even more important than that, ourautoexpert.com. <laughs> John's going to be with us for the rest of the show. Perry, thanks for getting out part of your Sunday. Uh, when we come back, more stuff, which includes John talking about military discounts on cars. Get your head out of wherever it was. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. It's Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles. Welcome back to the show. Uh, in studio with John Vincent from U.S. News and World Report, as well as Jen. Uh, we're talking about military discounts, not on buying military, but buying cars for military who want to purchase vehicles. If you does this go to people who are retired, John, or is it for only active military members? Generally, it goes for active duty military, uh, veterans who are within a couple of years of their service, and retired military. So that's everybody. If you've worked for the military at any one time, um, if you're 
a veteran and you're a couple of years out, then you probably won't qualify. Okay. All right. I mean, I, you know, I get it. Uh, so are they worth it? You know, yes and no. Uh, some manufacturers, they're great. General Motors and Ford have fantastic uh, military programs. And then what's great about a lot of these programs is they extend beyond military to first responders, firefighters, police, paramedics, even 911 dispatchers. Um, so if you have a service uh, oriented job, then you have a good chance of getting a decent discount. Yep. Um, I've seen them as sort of $250 with some manufacturers, but 1000 with others. So you just have to go check? A lot of them are around $500. Um, GM and Ford can be more, can be less. They actually have a site where you go out and register, and they send you the, the pre-negotiated price, so you don't even have to bargain over it at the dealership. Um, do they uh, help you with anything like uh, services that go beyond the purchase or is it just the purchase price? Just the purchase price, but there are other discounts in the market um, related to your car purchase. XM Satellite Radio has a fantastic deal for, um, for military uh, right. where you get, uh, I think it's 20 or 25% off um, your XM service. That, I, mean, I like it when you can get discounts, so, and especially for somebody who's served. So question here, the, a lot of these um, discounts, uh, you know, if you tell them up ahead of time that you are an ex-military member, um, I, well, we get discounts. Sometimes we can help people with friends and family deals. We can go and get special numbers. And I always encourage anybody, by the way, if you want some help with buying a car, if you, you just contact us through social media accounts. We can always refer you to somebody. We can refer you to a friendly dealer. Uh, we're always very happy to do that. You can go to Our Auto Expert on Facebook or Twitter uh, and just send us a message, and we'll try and help you in any way we can get a really good deal on a car. You should also know that getting a good price on a car is not always the thing that you want to do. You want to get the price which actually benefits you. So 0% financing may not be a good idea in all circumstances. Yeah, the deals, <laughs> deals depend. The big thing on doing financing is you want to get your financing pre-approved right. at an outside lender before you get anywhere near the dealership. If you walk into a dealership and you don't have pre-approved financing, they have no incentive to have to try and beat that price. Right, right. So that's the first thing. So what I do is I always tell everybody, go in there, negotiate the best price, put, you know, tell everything, then give them your uh, PIN number that I got you to help you get the friends and family deal or whatever the deal might be. Exactly. And they're not always available. Is it the same with military discounts? Absolutely. You, you go in there, you negotiate the best price, and then you, you give them the token and say, oh, by the way, I need another 500 Yep. And most of them should be pretty good about it because those come from the manufacturer. They're not out of the dealer's pocket. It tells you how good the dealer is um, when you do that because if they bark at that, then, you know, there may be they're a dealer that you shouldn't be dealing with. All my friends who are dealers in our broadcast <coughs> area, I have never had this problem with. They are always more than happy to, to help you in any way they, that you want. Well, and that's another way to get additional military discounts. Uh, Around Memorial Day and around Labor Day and around the 4th of July, you'll see additional discounts being offered to military and first responders. Um, and a lot of dealerships are owned by veterans, and so they have a soft spot to, to help them out. Right. Oh, that's good advice. Now, you also have 30 tips for car buying. Uh, what's your number one tip? Don't focus on the monthly payment. Yeah. Dealers will want to keep you focused on the monthly payment, and I can get anybody into any car for a certain monthly payment just by stretching the car loan out. You don't want to do that. You end up paying thousands and thousands of dollars by the end of the loan that you don't have to pay 
because you've just stretched it out. You're paying interest for way too long. Right. So focus on the actual price of the car. Focus on the total price of the car, including the cost of financing. Right. That that's always a good piece of information. Give me give me some more of your wisdom, John Vincent. <laughs> um, look at uh, how much your car costs to insure before you before you buy oh, it. Yeah. So that's a good question. Uh, I've been driving the Nissan Leaf uh, recently, the new one that has about two hundred and twenty odd miles out of it, uh, two hundred thirty odd miles. And my mom asked me, "Is it cost more to insure?" And I said. Well, some electric cars like Tesla do cost more to insure, but I'm not sure about a Leaf. Does it cost more to insure than a Nissan Versa Note? I'm not sure on that one, but that's why you need to talk to yeah. your insurance agent before you uh, before you decide. Yeah, find out what it's going to cost you to insure that car. Uh, yeah. What else? Oh, there's just lots of things. Uh, buy at the right time. Uh, towards the end of the month, dealers have to hit their targets. Yeah. So if you find a dealership that hasn't hit their target then they're likely to make you a good deal so they can hit their uh, hit their sales goal. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, not that we're going to be able to do that now, but December is also a killer month to End buy. of December is fantastic. And then around uh, September, around Labor Day. Yeah, and remember, it's the salesperson that has goals. It's the dealership that has goals. So, you know, you can, uh, everybody has goals. Do people uh, return leases at a certain month? Are they flooded with lease returns at a certain time of year? No, not really. So it's just, I mean, it, perhaps if you're going to get a two-year-old car off a deal a lot, perhaps the same time of year, December and September, are always good to buy. Right, any time where anybody's buying is probably you know a time where lease returns are coming back. Yeah. All right. Uh, when you buy a brand new car, how long should you spend test driving it? You should spend at least an hour, preferably a couple hours, and half that time should be sent spent just sitting in the car, making sure it's comfortable, making sure that you can see what you need to see. Um, if there's a certain type of cargo that you have to carry, like a dog crate, make sure it fits. Yeah. Um, if you have child seats, take your child seats with you and install them in the car. Yeah. Don't just take somebody's words that, oh, yeah, a child seat will fit in this back seat. Take your seat and make sure it fits. What I do when I'm buying a car for my significant other or myself is I'll have my significant other drive the route from our house to work. So and that's a really good telltale because, you know, coming up to this intersection, you know, it's blind on this corner. Uh, can I see out of this new car? Um, and also, how long does it take me? And, you know, these sort of things. They're always really good things because, you know, if you're going from uh, something like a, a little Mazda Miata where you can zip in and out of traffic and going to a... A three-row SUV, your commute time is going to change, and and what lane you can be in, and all those sort of things are going to change. Yeah, yeah. Dealers will typically have a designated test driver out. Um, it's designed for safety. It won't have left turns across traffic, that kind of thing. But if you have, if you're driving a car, and they won't let you take it on the freeway, um, why? That might be telling you that there's a good reason they don't want you to take it on the freeway. Yeah, why? That's a, that's an interesting one. Yeah, if, you know, it might not make it up the on ramp. There are, although, <laughs> oh yeah, that's a, that would be trouble. Wow, <laughs> you'd find that on the first day if you had to take the freeway. The uh, one of the things I find very interesting, uh, especially even when you test drive a new car, is it's hard to find bad cars. There are very few bad cars. There used to be plenty of cars that weren't that great out there. It's hard to find a bad car. But it's also hard to find a car that fits what you need perfectly. That is true. There's, there's no perfect car. Um, 
There well, aren't the just Aston many bad... Martin at Geneva. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How well can you see out the back of that? I don't care. Okay. You don't need to. Uh, it's behind me. If it's behind me, I'm done. Unless I have to reverse it into a tight garage. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of done. Like, if I, uh, if, yeah. yeah. It's behind me. I'm think gone. It, think about the comfort and the visibility. If you can't see out of it in, your, in the dealer's parking lot, you're not going to be able to see out of it three months later. It's not going to be any more comfortable three months later. Uh, so you get it right the first time. I always say, uh, you know, if you're changing class of car too, make sure you park it. Because, yeah. uh, you know, especially on the dealer, dealer lot, if you back it into a parking space, uh, it'll tell you a lot. If you, and, and for those people that go from things like, uh, you know, a Fiesta to an Expedition, you really want to spend a lot of time before you do that. And remember that for the most part, the purchase of a car is not returnable. Yes. Despite what they might say about yeah. their return policies, think about it like it's not returnable. Right. It's a done deal. John Vincent from U.S. News and World Report. He's going to be with us for the rest of the show. You can read his stuff right there. Uh, all the latest car stuff that John does, and he outputs a huge amount of material. I think I do. He's about ten times what I do. Coming up, Anton Wallman on the show. We're going to talk to him about what's going on with Tesla. More Auto Expert with Nick Miles is on the way. He's Nick Miles, and this is our auto expert. Do you notice towards the end of the show that it starts to become a dance party in here? John Eric, uh, our producer, is dancing out there, and, the, and, and Jeff, the news guy, his head's bobbing. Uh, and the music gets a little more like party central. All right, uh, so there's a lot of news around Tesla um, and Model Y introduced. We talked a little bit about that. Um, but joining us on the phone, Anton Warman. He is our independent investor and analyst. Anton, bigger news coming from Tesla. Uh, you know, fin uh, financial news for them, but the Securities and Exchange Commission looks like there may be a bomb drop this week, or maybe not. I mean, you know, we've expected it before and it hasn't happened. So tell us, inform us, educate us on what's going on. So what's going on here is really a follow-on to what started to unfold last August. You may recall that Elon Musk uh, basically communicated in the middle of the day, at uh, one day there in early August, that uh, he had funding secured for uh, a uh, potential takeout of the company, and he said that all the thing, the only thing that was left, you know, t to make this thing absolutely certain was a shareholder vote. Now, as the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, quickly inquired, none of that was true whatsoever. He hadn't held any conversations of any significant nature with any buyer, let alone lined up any financing. The whole thing was basically a lie. So they essentially sued him uh, over this. And uh, uh, after some initial resistance from Elon Musk's side, he came to his senses and settled with him. And this settlement, which was sort of drafted in late September and signed on to, and, you know, they went through a court approval and then became effective, not until, I think, the first half of December. Um, the more salient parts of this settlement was that he needed what we would refer to as a Twitter sitter. Uh, there's not a formal... Uh, <laughs> There's not a formal name for this person per se, but it had to be basically, basically an experienced um, securities lawyer that would have to approve 
all forms of communications that the man provided to the outer world uh, in advance. So, oh, in other by words, the way, by the way, people, he is not the exclusive, the only person that needs, and I'm going to coin your term forever, by the way, a Twitter sitter. There are several <laughs> other people in this country that could do with a Twitter sitter. However, carry on. That may be the case. But that may be the case, but uh, only one of them is at present the subject of jurisdiction of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Right. And uh, basically what happened here was that it appears to be the case that Mr. Musk has essentially ignored the whole thing. So uh, he just spouted off like he always did uh, in the weeks and months uh, after the settlement. And he even taunted the Security and Exchange Commission itself. He basically said that having to pay this fine and being subject to this agreement was, quote, worth it. And that he, he went on 60 Minutes and he said, I want to make it very clear is that I have no respect for the SEC. I do not respect them. I mean, for crying out loud, when you're, the government has laid their heavy glove on you, you basically you bend over and you say, sir, I am apologetic. It's like when you get stopped by a, 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 a cop, you know, uh, having done 180 miles an hour over the speed limit, and the cop had just searched your trunk and found 200 pounds of cocaine. And, and you, you basically, at that point, you try to be very nice with the police, okay? You do not uh, give them the middle finger and say some really, really bad words to them. So that is now the position in which he finds himself. And then you fast forward here to the middle of February, in which he started um, throwing out some numbers. Oh, well, we're going to make 500,000 cars this year, and we didn't make any in 2011, and a few other assorted claims that he started tweeting out in the middle of the evening long after uh, any real or potential Twitter sitter would have been uh, asleep, probably. And um, what happened in the days uh, following that is that the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, inquired into, okay, what did you do here? Were these things approved? Uh, if so, by whom? And, uh, you know, can you please give any support of this? And uh, uh, long story short, he and the company basically said, nah, we, we interpreted this whole agreement, this whole settlement from last fall to mean that it was up to Elon Musk himself to decide what was really important or not. And if it, and if he deemed that the matter was not really all that important, he could be just basically say whatever he wanted. And, of course, that's crazy. That was entirely the opposite of the very, both the, the letter of the agreement as well as certainly the spirit of the agreement. So correspondence went forth and back here over the last week or two between Elon Musk and their various lawyers and the SEC. And the letter that we just saw here that uh, somehow either we had missed or hadn't really been made public but just came out the other day reads like the devil itself. Uh, the SEC is really asking him to provide all sorts of new information on all sorts of adjacent issues. And they're basically saying, you haven't even tried to make a good faith effort in really responding to our previous questions here. So uh, what are you doing? And they seem extremely peeved. So that's where we're standing right now. And the judge here who's supposed to supervise the settlement, this judge in New York, has basically asked the government to provide up to 15 pages of further arguments by the end of business day Tuesday this upcoming here a couple of days from now. So that's really the likely the next milestone here that unless there is a settlement before that, which is possible, uh, where we will really see where the government is going with this whole thing. But 
the government seems very, very peeved here, and uh, this is probably not the adversary in life that you want to be really, really peeved when they view you as being completely, defiantly, and openly ignoring uh, basic, Everything, yeah. Police commands. Everything they've said. Yeah. Ant- Anton, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the best and worst case scenarios for Tesla and their relationship with the U.S. government because it could go either way, I think, uh, the way I look at it. All right. You're listening to Our Auto Expert. If you want to hear any of the shows that we've previously recorded, ourautoexpert.com, or just send us friendly messages on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. More of Our Auto Expert with Nick Miles is coming up. Time to set it on cruise control. This is Our Auto Expert. Now, here's Nick Miles. Anton Wolman on the phone with us. He's an independent investor and analyst. You can read much of his stuff at SeekingAlpha.com. John Vincent from US News and World Report in the studio along with Jen. We are talking about Tesla and what could possibly happen this week with Elon Musk. So, Anton, what's the worst case and the best case scenario for Elon, the outcomes of this latest run-in with the government? Yeah, well, let's start with the best case, probably the kind of the mildest version, because that seems to be where the consensus in the market is right now, that really not much will come out of this. To really explain what's going on there, I need to make one further note as to the facts of what's going on. Uh, Tesla actually engaged new counsel in this case that provided their most recent brief. This is the brief in which they're basically arguing that uh, Elon and the company don't really have to follow any of this agreement whatsoever and that whatever the government comes up with, it's basically optional uh, for them to comply with. They actually hired uh, as a law firm to defend them in this Wilmer Hale. Wilmer Hale should ring a bell in some people's minds. This is the firm that current special counsel Robert Mueller joined when he left the FBI as a director in 2014. So they essentially hired Robert Mueller's firm to help them argue that neither Tesla nor Elon Musk is particularly compelled to uh, uh, follow any laws. This is actually quite stunning. But uh, so you would think that's another person who may also be in need of a Twitter sitter from time to time. (laughs) May one of these days say, wait a minute. Let me think now. Maybe I should take a similar stance based on Robert Mueller's former law firm as well to see if that is consistent with what he's now claiming that I may or may not have to do in the future. But that's a side note. So I think what uh, the mild interpretation of what may come out of this thing is that uh, basically uh, the government uh, would agree that uh, Elon Musk and the company finally have to basically abide by the settlement. They have to have this Twitter sitter that will have to approve all of these communications, not just tweets, by the way. This includes communications in all other forms, could be earnings calls, could be other forms of written communications, anything that basically touching that touches the investment public in any form or another. So maybe essentially the company and Elon Musk were to yield and say, OK, we give up. Um, you are right here after all, or at least we acknowledge that we now have to abide by the settlement. And at the end of the day, that that'll be it. That would probably be the best scenario for Mr. Musk and the company. Now, in terms of the worst case scenario, well, that's where things start to snowball a bit because that's where we really, there's really no exact feeling that we could see here because if the government is sufficiently peeved and views the company and 
and this and its CEO here as being completely uncooperative. As you know, the government has infinite means to go basically absolutely bananas over this, and they can employ almost any methods that they want to uh, gather more evidence or find new things. I mean. We, can, we could be talking about pre-dawn no-knock raids. I mean, that, nobody is predicting that that would happen at this point. But the point is this. The government, when they first sued Musk in September, their first ask in their public lawsuit, if you read it, uh, was, among other things, his removal as CEO. So, uh, one, not entirely unreasonable uh, theory as to what they might ask for at this point is to go back to, to their original ask. I'm not saying that that necessarily will happen that way, but that is certainly one of the quivers that, are, that is in the cards here. Let me ask you this question. I have multiple questions now. Let me ask you this question. What precedent does it set if, if Elon does not have to follow the instructions of the U.S. government? I mean, ultimately, do I not have to f pay my taxes because I feel it's a suggestion? I mean, oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing. This is where the government is put into a bit of a bind. It was very interesting last September, you know, the enforcement staff, the actual attorneys, the staff attorneys at the SEC, they were the ones who really drove the case at that time in the beginning. They they uh, wrote up the lawsuit and they were ready to go, you know, they were basically ready to go to court. And then Jay Clayton, who is the chairman of the SEC, was a political appointee uh, appointed by the president of the United States. Uh, he uh, personally intervened in the case and basically said, uh, let's go easy on the man. Uh, let's find a way to see if there's a way by which we can not cause harm to his ability to run the company. We'll do something. In the end, he, Elon Musk agreed to step down as chairman of the board for three years. And that took place, of course, in, uh, I believe it was in December when he did, in fact, step down and they appointed a new uh, chairman and they appointed two new independent directors, one of whom is Larry Ellison, the founder and CEO or former CEO, anyway, of uh, Oracle. So um, uh, that's what happened at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, the staff at this point has to be a little bit concerned that if they fold like a cheap suit here, then... Uh, some people might draw exactly the conclusion that you just said, which is to say, well, uh, are we now to expect going forward that uh, the government is going to make uh, uh, fulfilling any agreement with them that you have done in terms of a settlement into being essentially optional? And I have to believe that they're going to ask for a little bit more than just say, please go back to square one. You know, uh, there are different attitudes from different states, of course. Um, California is all very positive towards Tesla. They always have been, Oregon and Washington somewhat, uh, because of the alternative energies. But Texas seems to have a bee in their bonnet about uh, Elon Musk. The Lone Star State has a history of blocking Tesla attempts to sell cars there since uh, 2013. The lawmakers have refused to take up four bills allowing direct sales in the state. And the twist of the knife is that apparently they're also uh, blocking people in the state from receiving their 2500 alternative fuel vehicle incentive since the cars are not sold at dealerships. And now they're trying to introduce a bill which blocks uh, Tesla from fixing their own cars, which means they'd have to be fixed by a third party. Uh, is this something that you think is going to get any traction, or do you think it's just Texas being Texas? Well, you, you have here at, at, at the most fundamental core, you have... Uh, the state-by-state -state interpretation of these dealer franchise laws. 
And a number of states, the majority of the states, in fact, the United States, such as California and many others, have taken the view that if the company, if the automaker did not previously have any dealerships in that state, they can sell direct. They can do whatever they want. Other states have taken a harsher interpretation of these dealer franchise laws, and Texas is probably the most militant of them all. They're basically saying, look, if you're going to sell any car in the state, you have to do it through a dealership period. It doesn't matter whether you had any dealerships before or if you didn't. So um, I actually think that um, you know Tesla is very much in the right here. I think that the market should be able to decide on how you sell, whether you sell direct or not. I mean, can you imagine in the computer industry if, say, uh, you know, computer retailers that you can't have Apple selling uh, products themselves through Apple stores? I mean, that would be crazy. Right. So I think that Tesla is 100% in the right here. Do you think that uh, this is going to be resolved? Because it seems like there's certain states have managed to block it, but they're constantly getting challenges from Tesla or from people who support it. And then there's other states who embrace the online selling too. Because, uh, you know, to be honest with you, dealers have had quite a monopoly on selling cars. I mean, and and as was pointed out to me by Fiat, uh, the head of one of the Fiat Chrysler brands, Tim Kaniskas, who's the head of Jeep and Alfa Romeo, he said, we don't sell cars to the general public. We only sell cars to dealers. Dealers are the ones that sell Correct. to the general public. So, you know, there, there seems to be a topsy-turvy world here in which there is no obvious path. So, the, here's the two things going on here. First of all, uh, this, the tide, I think, is generally in Tesla's favor. I think that more and more states are coming around to thinking in that direction. Some states have created a bit of a hybrid approach, like the state of New York, for example, where they allow some limited direct sales, but they haven't given people the full license to do it any way they want. And other people, or other states, I should say, like Texas, have basically said no, end of story. Now, their analogy here in terms of what's going on in the industry is a little bit like, if you go all the way back to 1984, when uh, the judge, the federal judge, broke up AT&T as we knew it at the time, until 1984, AT&T was essentially a total monopoly. And what the, the breakup in 1984 meant was that they structurally separated local telephone access with what we used to call long-distance calling. And that it opened up the ability for special long-distance companies like Sprint and MCI to come in, and you essentially got two bills. You got one bill from the local company and you got one bill from the long-distance calls that you made. And that's really the analogy of what has happened here with these dealer franchise laws. The government has basically said individually in each, each of these states that uh, the, the business needs to be divided up into two layers, the manufacturer and the dealership. And that may have made sense at some point, but... I, I really think that they are very, very outdated, these laws. And I think Tesla has a very good point when they say, let, uh, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. And whether the customer wants the business to be vertical or whether the customer wants the business to be divided into two separate layers should really be up to the, an open, in, open interplay in the free market. And uh, the problems, of, of course, now is that having already established this structural separation, how do you unscramble the omelet? Because if you were to suddenly allow uh, an incumbent automaker, GM, Ford, Nissan, whomever, to go out and uh, sell direct uh, and, and just essentially abandon all of these dealerships in one way or the other, 
then you're going to have all of these investments that have been made in these dealerships potentially to be in jeopardy. So there's no really elegant way to unscramble this omelet. So um, this is a case whereby we certainly, we certainly can see where the world should have gone if we had started from scratch uh, right now, and that would have been just to let everybody compete on whatever level they want. But having already instituted a franchise dealership model by law it's not exactly easy to get out of it. All right. Anton Woolman, you can read his stuff at uh, SeekingAlpha.com. I had to think about that for a second. SeekingAlpha.com and the street. Uh, Anton, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Your insights are always uh, well accepted, and they are food for thought. I'll be thinking about them until about 2 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Uh, John, would you ever buy a Tesla? In about five years. You think they need to work their way through the reliability scale and the, the quality scale? That seems to be the one point where Tesla have just not really managed to get their act together. Building cars is very difficult. Yes. Um, I also think that uh, Tesla ramped up way too quickly for good quality. Uh, they were talking about producing 400,000 cars a year, where it took BMW 50 years or so to actually get that many cars produced at the quality they wanted in America. I mean, you know, they're... They're now the biggest exporter of luxury cars in North America, period, and they did it because they did it right. And building cars on the West Coast is even tougher. Um, GM's tried it, Ford's tried it, Toyota's tried it. They're pretty good at building cars, and they couldn't do it on the West Coast. Yeah, and there's also that supply. I, I asked I asked Toyota why they built their uh, Toyota. I asked Honda why they built their uh, factories in Ohio, and they said because it's about a four-hour uh, train ride to anywhere we can ship the car from or any of the parts manufacturers. Yeah, their Ohio factories are within, I think, 500 miles of 80% of the population right. in the country. Right, and so uh, the, you know, that was their whole idea, is, is we're close to everything where the car needs. What's the point of building a car in, in the Northwest if you have to ship all the parts out from the East Coast, build it, and then ship the car back to the East Coast? Exactly. So. Yeah, it's an interesting one. John Vincent from U.S. News and World Report. Thank you for being part of the show. Want to listen to previous shows? OurAutoExpert.com is where you can find them. Uh, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, or you're looking to buy a car, uh, anyone on the team here, me, Jen, or whoever, will help you. Go to our social media channels. You can find uh, Twitter, a Facebook, an Instagram, uh, and you can talk to us directly. And we will respond. That's a promise from Our Auto Expert. <laughs>